Hello, and welcome to Driverless. I'm your host, Zach Adams. On today's episode, Jake Campbell, an IP litigator here at Tucker Ellis, makes his inaugural appearance and joins Todd Northman and I to discuss a bunch of different topics related to autonomous vehicles, public adoption, and future changes to transportation infrastructure. We talk about past mobility technologies and why they failed to catch on. We go into why we think autonomous vehicles will be different, and then we forecast some changes that we believe will occur to the infrastructure around us as autonomous vehicles become more prevalent. As always, you can follow us at, at underscore driverless on Twitter, which we envision as a one-stop resource for all autonomous vehicle news. You can also reach out to us at driverless at with any feedback, questions, or comments. Uh, we really love the response we've gotten so far, and we've had a lot of fun interacting with all of you that have reached out. But with that said, let's get rolling to today's episode of Driverless. All right, Jay and Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks, Zach. Glad to be here. Thanks, Zach. All right, guys. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about how autonomous vehicles are going to change the way cities are built. It's something our listeners are really curious about, and so we want to give them what they want. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you guys is, what are some of the changes you think are going to be you know, the most prevalent or that you're most interested in seeing? Well, Zach, I think the first question is whether they really are going to change the way cities are built. What do you mean by that? This isn't the first time that society has looked at a new invention and say, wow, this is going to change the way cities are built. Everything is going to be different. Are you referring to like previous modes of transportation or something else? Modes of transportation. If we look back to January of 1985, 30 years ago, there was a guy by the name of Clive Sinclair. Who is he? You're too um, young to remember, but Clive <laughs> Sinclair was the inventor of the pop pocket calculator as well as the first personal computer okay. called the Sinclair. So this is before, you know, Macintosh and Windows and all that, right? This is before you were, you were born, yeah. Yeah, okay, just making um, sure. Yeah, in January of 1985, Clive Sinclair, to much fanfare, introduced what's called the Sinclair C5, and it was going to change the way cities are built. I've, uh, I've never heard of a Sinclair C5, so could you explain what that is? Well, it didn't change the way cities are built. The Sinclair C5 was a electronically assisted um, pedal control personal vehicle. Okay, and so this is like a car with pedals in it, or this is a bike with a roof? What does this kind of look like? It was a three-wheeled vehicle, a little bigger than a tricycle. Um, with the plastic surroundings making it look like a car. Okay. And uh, people were going to pedal it throughout cities. We weren't going to need to have cars. We weren't going to need to have gasoline. We weren't going to have to have big parking garages and all the congestion. It was going to change the way cities are built. Now, Todd, you're, you're a little more senior than I am. Do you know anything about the C5? No, this is the first I've heard. It sounds like a rickshaw, but I'm fascinated. Okay, so Jay, take us through why the C5 didn't end up working. Well, it's interesting that the C5, everybody thought was going to be phenomenal. Uh, the car got, you know, 15 miles per charge. Wow, incredible. Okay. 15 yeah. miles, right? Unbelievable. Um, and uh, you could just get on it in your garage or your front yard and you'd pedal it to work. And the thought was going to be that everything was going to be much more compacted in cities now because you would have these little personal vehicles that you would you know, ride to work without having this big overstructure of these heavy parking garages and all these places to park because you'd have these little personal vehicles, you know, just a little bit bigger, bigger than bicycles. Okay, so 
why didn't the C5 end up like revolutionizing cities the way that people thought it was going to? Well, that's a good question. Nobody really knows. People think maybe it was the the lack of market research, but uh, the Sinclair C5 company debuted in January of 1985 and declared bankruptcy in October of 1985. So it was very short-lived. Yeah. But it's not the only, uh, I guess, vehicle that was going to change the way cities were built. If we fast forward 15 years okay, uh, from 1985 to 2000, 2001, there was a, this again, maybe too old or too far away for you, Zach, but uh, in 2001, there was a lot of hype around something called ginger. Todd, do you know what ginger is? Ginger I've heard of. You can still see these around a little bit. So ginger was going to change the world. And that's a quote from Steve Jobs. I mean, this wasn't just anybody introducing something. It was going to change the way cities are built. And so what was ginger? Well, ginger turned out to be the Segway. <laughs> you mean the thing that uh, mall cops drive? Mall, cl- mall cops. And that's where we see them. You know, that we, you see them on that and on these little tour guides uh, right, around little cities. But that's as far as it went. Um, Segway is supposed to truly change the way cities were built. They were going to be constructed wholly differently, again, like the uh, Sinclair C- C5. Because you weren't going to need parking garages. You weren't going to need to have um, all this incredible structure of um, gas stations and all of that because they were electric. Again, we all know it didn't quite turn out. Is there is there a reason why uh, Ginger or the Segway didn't work out? Or is it just kind of the same as the C5 where it's, no one really gets why it didn't take? I don't think anybody really knows exactly why a lot of inventions like this don't work when they seem to have... You know, to a guy like Steve Jobs, who knew what this was. I mean, Silicon Valley, their biggest entrepreneurs were investing in this company. Uh, An incredible amount of money. People thought that it was going to sell a billion dollars worth of product faster than any company in the world. They predicted it would be bigger than the Internet. That is And this is, I mean, this isn't a long time ago. This is 15, 16, 17 years ago. Um, and now we saw, see it being used, you know, by cops and malls. Um, people said it might not work because it, uh, you know, turned out to be 3000 bucks. It was too expensive. It's too expensive. Not everybody wanted to spend that much. It also weighed between 70 and a hundred pounds. So it's not like you just pick it up and put it in your house somewhere, or you take it to work like you do with a bike. Um, so the combination, I think between the cost between the fact that it only went 15, 17 miles an hour, um, which, you know, still you'd have to live close to downtown if you're going to use that to, to avoid an incredibly lengthy commute. Um, those factors made it very difficult to use. So one of the things I want to touch on, and Todd, you're just, you've got this look on your face. You seem so fascinated by this. Uh, so maybe you can field this for us. One of the things that I think is interesting is both the C5 and, uh, and Ginger the Segway were both electric vehicles. In a time whenever there wasn't the uh, effort to go green that we see kind of, you know, supporting the movement away from combustion engines today. Um, you know, I'll start with you, Tom. Jay, we're going to come right back to you. But do you have, I mean, any idea why the movement towards electric vehicles has been, um, I guess there's been so many hurdles along the way. Do you think it's just battery charge length, things like that? Well, I think Jay really hit upon two of the factors, and expense is one of them, and two, they weren't as good as they were promised, and so they run 
into problems with execution. But what I love about Jay's stories is how much it resonates with what we're seeing now, down to the promises, but also seeing that we have better forms. But one of the things I keep scratching my head on is the prevalence of these electric scooters and how much excitement they engender and the valuation on Lime and Bird, not to call anyone out, but you hear a lot about this and I keep thinking that'd be great if I lived in Santa Monica and I just wanted to go up the pier, but it's hard to see how that's really gonna change cities. So that's an excellent question and a good test for us as we discuss what's gonna be different this time. What do you think, Jay? I mean, as far as the movement from, you know, electric three-wheeled bike to electric Segway to now we're seeing electric cars, do you think that electric vehicles are just the obvious future? Or do you think there's something innate about them that causes these hurdles to rise time and time again? No, I, I think there's something innate about an electric car that's going to make it different. First off, it's a car. It's not this tricycle that people pedal around with the you know help of a battery. It's not the Segway, which you, you know, look kind of um, strange, <laughs> you know, with your little helmet on. Um, it's a more acceptable around. form factor. Yeah, it is. I mean, people are familiar driving cars. I'm, I'm guessing, Zach, you came to work today. You drove your car. Yep. I drove my car. Uh, One of ours is all electric. Yours. Yeah, mine's, mine's electric. A combustion engine. Right. But it, it, it's not so different. In other words, the form factor is not so different that people are afraid of it. Uh, it's easily accepted. You know, so it was very easy for me to go from my old Acura, which was internal combustion, to a Tesla. Because, you know, they're both cars. You both get in them the same way. Uh, they both hold four, six, seven people. So you're saying the barrier to entry as far as adopting like a new lifestyle really didn't exist for you because it was you're, the only thing that really changed is you weren't going to the gas station. You were plugging yes. in at night. Yeah, the biggest thing that changed is that I didn't have to get gas in the morning when it's 15 degrees out. That sounds like a problem I'd love to have, Jay. <laughs> but in, 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 I mean, it is so easy to make that small adaption from internal, internal combustion to have an electrically powered motor in your car, that it's simple. So you make that first little jump to an electric vehicle. And then the next jump to making that autonomous, you know, maybe isn't that big again, because you're still driving essentially the same car that I had a year ago, you know, but now it drives its way to work for me. Right. No, I think that's a good point. And, and it's funny that we started this conversation off with saying, where are we most interested in seeing? And basically, we're, the answer was, we're interested in seeing if it works. Uh, so kind of looping it back to our conversation, uh, what do we think are going to be the first signs of change we see in city planning infrastructure as autonomous cars become more prevalent? As Jay just said, I mean, he, you know, he's a big fan of autopilot. I'm guessing you are, right? Drive on nav is fantastic. Exactly. There you go. Big fan of drive on nav. So we're already seeing autonomous type driving, and I'm just kind of wondering what you guys think are going to be the first signs that this is changing the way we plan our cities. Todd, do you want to start? Yeah, no, and I think we're already starting to see that. What we've got is more millennials who resist buying cars and who are more committed to living downtown. And once you do that, then all of a sudden Ginger slash Segway makes a lot more sense. And one of the themes I've heard from Jay's history lesson is really 
the Segway wasn't making anyone's life better. It was making it different. And how much more so the Sinclair? That sounds like an urban planner's dream, but not anyone who's actually trying to commute to work in downtown Cleveland in November, let alone in February. I, I think an interesting thing, too, is that the millennials are going away from buying their own cars. In other words, they're borrowing cars in other, you know, by using Uber or using Lyft. Mm -hmm. And they're used to not having a car. I mean, I'm used to always having a car, maybe two, maybe three. Uh, you know, our, our grandparents and parents, of course they had cars. You know, nobody even conceived of the idea of taking a taxi everywhere. Um, nobody thought of Uber for the longest time, which is hard to believe. It wasn't just the fact that it's so uh, computerized. Uber could have existed a long time ago. But with Uber and Lyft, people now don't need to own their own cars. And that shift is what's going to drive the biggest shift, I think, in uh, cities. Yeah, and, and to your point, I think it's worth mentioning, you know, as soon as I got out of law school, I, uh, I got hired here at Tucker Ellis. I start working. I live downtown because I know the hours are going to be kind of crazy and I don't have to have a long commute. And But, of course, you know, I had parents that said, you know, whenever you, you graduate, you got to get a car. So I get a car. And uh, and I would honestly drive my car maybe two or three times a week because I was walking to work. I was walking to the gym. I was walking to the grocery store. The only time I'd really take my car is uh, maybe to go get dinner out in the suburbs with my, you know, family or, think, or work trips, things like that. I mean, even now whenever I travel for work, I'm having an Uber take me to the airport because it's easier and it's more cost efficient than parking my car. Um, so I think you're right. And to that point, for me personally, I think one of the first things we're going to see and we're already starting to see is, you know, we're no longer going to build standalone parking garages. What we're seeing now, especially uh, in bigger cities, is the parking is always almost always part of the bigger building, right? It's you've got the parking below, you know, like we've seen before, commercial space, retail space on top or whatever, um, residential space. I think the idea there is we're already kind of future proofing ourselves. Because then eventually, when those parking garages aren't needed, when we can send our cars somewhere else to go park themselves and then come pick us up like our own personal valet, we're going to be able to build into that space that's right now being used as a parking garage. As opposed to these standalone structures that we've previously seen, which are only concrete, uh, they don't have electricity, they don't have plumbing, you know, things like that, they're going to go away. I mean, those don't make much sense in an urban sprawl that we no longer need to have our car close to where we're parking or where we're going to work. I mean, I think that's going to be one of the first things we see. Right. Just think about where we are now. We're sitting in the 10th floor of a 20-floor building. Down below us are four floors of parking garages inside the building. If we look to our west, we see a parking um, deck. If we look catty-corner to us, we see another parking lot. To the west, there's a parking lot. And to the northeast, there's a parking lot. Those things, you know, not only are those going to turn into green spaces and turn into other repurposed uses, but when you build a building, you have to think there's not just people in that building, but you need to have that person's car. You need the infrastructure. You need to have the infrastructure of those parking garages, those parking lots. We're not going to need those now. So you're not going to be constrained. Here we are, maybe 20 floors wasn't the best height, but there wasn't enough parking around, so you couldn't go beyond 20 floors. So people think buildings are going to get higher. They're going to get taller. Ours won't be 20 floors. It might be 30, and then we'll get rid of all those parking garages and parking lots, and we'll turn those into parks. We'll turn them into trees. We'll turn them into, 
you know, uh, malls or whatever they might be. But you know, you're not going to have the infrastructure that we don't think about now. And to your point, I think something that's worth noting is we're already seeing that in cities around the country, they're becoming increasingly walkable. They're, they're repurposing space for green spaces with the specific intent to make it more accessible to the residents. That's something that I don't think you know my parents would have thought about 30 years ago. Uh, I don't think that's a thing. You know, I can't imagine my dad ever coming home from work and being angry because he couldn't walk to get lunch. You know, that wasn't a conversation I heard over the dinner table. But now that's something that we really care about. You know, uh, across the country we see lists of the most accessible cities, the cities that the residents are most happy in. And time and time again, what we're seeing is people want to be able to. Uh, you know, enjoy the cities there. And much like you'd enjoy a college campus with a quad and with green space. And you're absolutely right, Jay, that all of a sudden it doesn't really make sense to have all these empty parking lots because we can send our cars elsewhere and they could come get us when we need them. The thing I think will be interesting is you mentioned that our you know, buildings can now be taller, but they'll also be more efficient in the sense of we won't have to have four floors of parking space. Because parking space, you know, it's a revenue generator maybe for the tenant of the build, or not the tenant, the owner of the building. But it's not as profitable as rental, right? As rent space, like that's a way. There's way higher margins on that. And so instead of having four floors of parking garages, we're going to be able to have four more floors of office spaces, of recreational spaces, things like that. Uh, Todd. Yeah. No. I, what I love about this vision is understanding this is just the first order change. And then as you think about the second and third order changes, it becomes unbelievable. Because once you remove vehicles from downtown parking, then all of a sudden your streets don't need to be as wide. And it makes walking safer. And you open up to go back to Segway or maybe, I mean, God forbid, but you know, if we go to Sinclair, those make a lot more sense where you don't have other cars. And we're already starting to see this where you've got Manhattan bike lanes, but bike lanes being used by those scooters, being used by the the segways, that sort of population. And it does create that same environment you're talking about, Zach, where, and I hadn't made that analogy, but the college campus, that quad where you've got an urban center is really, that's the appeal that they're selling on this increased urbanism as you remove parking, but then as you remove gas stations, that sort of thing. And those consequences become profound. And then just to touch on it, what does that do for transit? Mass transit looks very different in this scenario because I think it'd be hard to build the use case for that where you've got shared ridership that's cheaper than I can buy an RTA pass. And can you kind of expound upon that? Because I think that's a really interesting point that you know increased ride share opportunities and increased autonomous vehicle prevalence is really going to impact mass transit. I think that's a point not enough people are really hitting on. So could you kind of elaborate? Yeah, well, if you look at it, the RTA in Cleveland charges 250 per ride. Doesn't matter how long your ride is, you've got an hour worth, you could buy a $5 day pass, but something like that. But that's your cost. But as you look at doing Uber, say, particularly once you've got that autonomous, they're talking about dropping the cost of that to about 15 cents per mile ultimately. And we don't have to argue about whether that's realistic. But once you get a price point that looks say 250 for a ride, so it's the same expense as it costs me to ride from my house, then it's natural that I would want to use that sort of rideshare application. And once I start abandoning mass transit, everyone else is as well, because it's cheaper and better. And it's, it's natural, right? Because it's on demand. 
And that's the difference, right? The difference with what you're talking about uh, using an Uber or Lyft or any kind of rideshare is you can call it when you need it. You can take it home when you need it. It doesn't matter if you get stuck late at the office. It doesn't matter if it's snowing. You don't have to go stand at a bus station hoping that the bus is on time, right? Yeah, that's it exactly. You know, it's interesting. We started this conversation with whether this is going to work. Right. And we are seeing now why it's going to work, I think. I mean, because we saw that the entry into this isn't that much different for the ordinary person. In other words, he's still driving a car or you still have a car that you're going to be in. The millennials now are looking at not buying cars and things like Uber. Um, so now you don't have to have that personal car ownership that we're all tied to. I don't have to have my you know, 1975 uh, cherry red Camaro. Uh, but we see so many things coming together now that make this work. In other words, the Segway, the Sinclair, that was just one company thinking this is going to be cool. This is a group of hundreds of companies or more just looking at autonomous vehicles. We have GM, we have Ford, we have Tesla. We have... Um, you can keep going, right? Yeah. Google, yeah. I mean, it's uh, unbelievable. You know, Uber, yeah. uh, Waymo, all of those. So it's not just that one company. This is more of a groundswell. And we see all the factors kind of coming together to make this work where some of the others didn't work. And in fact, uh, Mary, uh, Mary Baroff, CEO yeah. of, of uh, GM, just a couple days ago, said that they're going to be closing factories for cars, five of them. They're cutting the workforce by uh, 14,000 employees. And they're getting rid of the engineers that they have that are devoted to internal combustion. And they're looking at autonomous vehicles. So, I mean, that's a huge shift. We have one of the biggest companies in the world. I mean, a company who built cars uh, for like 100 years switching to this technology. So when we're talking about the groundswell, you know, it's not just a groundswell, but there's investment of billions of dollars, and we have these huge companies already transforming the way that they are going to run. And, you know, it's funny. Uh, the thing that just jumped out to me was we're talking about this groundswell. You know, earlier when we were talking about the Segway, you, you were saying, you know, this is going to be a billion-dollar company. How much would all of these companies laugh if you told them, well, it's only going to be worth $1 billion to you? I mean, these companies aren't in it for a billion, right? These companies are in it for 20, 30, 40, you know. They're, they're looking at billions upon billions. And just to your point, the scale here is so different than the kind of cautionary tales you were mentioning in the beginning. I wish I could remember the name of it, but there was, there's a startup that's only been around for a few years working on autonomous vehicles and neural nets that was recently bought for over a billion dollars. Just the startup company that's the foundation of this technology. No, I mean, it's the, the money behind these uh, companies is higher now uh, than it's ever been before. And I think that's certainly part of what's going to drive this to hopefully succeed, uh, whereas other situations have failed. Right. No. And I think that's, you know, that follows my mantra, follow the money, because that's really what you've got here. You, the Uber IPO that is expected for January 2019 priced at $120 billion at the top end of the range. If you think about that in the context of the valuation of Ford, GM, and Fiat Chrysler automobiles, that's a greater combined value or greater value for Uber than the combined value of those three titans of American automotive industry. That's a phenomenal fact to contemplate. Absolutely. And 
And I know we've got to kind of get going, but I, I wanted to touch on this before we get out of here. Um, you know, we've talked about how cities are going to change. We've talked about kind of the momentum behind this industry that hasn't been present in previous attempts uh, at revolutionizing mobility. But what do you guys think are the biggest challenges specifically from the city, you know, building and infrastructure standpoint to adoption of autonomous vehicles? Um, you know, for me, one that really jumps out is there's going to be that really hard gray area whenever we've got human drivers and autonomous vehicles on the roads together. And as, as we touched on one of our early episodes, you know, AV 3.0 almost gives people the right to drive. So it's going to be hard to create a infrastructure and a city that makes sense to both uh, autonomous vehicles, where again, those narrower roads are possible or the more green space, but also leaves op- open the option of being a human driver. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, uh, GM is going to, according to their projections, they're going to stop putting steering wheels and pedals in cars. So that's going to be a pretty big impetus to people starting to take, you know, understanding autonomous vehicles. I mean, if the cars are only autonomous because they don't have a steering wheel, you're going to be left with nothing else. Uh, right now, um, you know, we've done these studies and you, you just ask people, are you ready for autonomous vehicles? Do you trust them? 70% say no. That's going to be overcome pretty quick when you get into a car and there is no steering wheel there. So you're saying that you think one of the biggest challenges is going to just be public adoption, but that based on the way uh, the companies are pursuing this, they're not really going to have a choice. It's going to be forced public adoption. And it's going to be not just because cars don't have um, steering wheels, but it's going to become so inefficient to let people drive more, you know, Autonomous vehicles are still going to have accidents, but they're going to be safer than having a person drive. And they're going to be safer than letting almost anybody drive. Because when you think about it, with all these autonomous vehicles out there, the accidents are going to be caused by somebody driving a non-autonomous vehicle. Right. And once we get rid of the non-autonomous vehicles, that's when we're going to have change taking place. We're not going to have to have red lights and green lights. The cars will talk to each other. We're not going to have street signs. We're not going to have all this parking along the sides of our neighborhoods and in the city streets. And once that transformation starts, it's going to move exponentially. You know, as soon as people start understanding, boy, I can build this whole city differently and I can have these quads and the the green spaces that uh, Todd was talking about. That's going to be the groundswell that's going to move things. And I think it's actually going to work faster than a lot of people think. And, and to your point, I do think there'll be, you know, not only the companies kind of pushing this movement, but also I think that there are other economic ways to incentivize people to get autonomous vehicles. And part of that is, you know, there may be one or two parking garages left in the city that are, you know, $30 a day. And all of a sudden it doesn't make so much sense for me to drive myself down there park in that garage and go to my job that's paying me, you know, less per hour than it costs to park for the day. Todd, what do you think will be kind of the biggest obstacle towards cities uh, adopting a new infrastructure, a new model for planning uh, as it relates to autonomous vehicles? Well, I agree fully with Jay that it's going to be the public adoption and perception. We need to do that. And to overcome that, it's going to take it being cheaper and better. So that's just the ground. But once we sort of solve that, it's going to be expense. It's going to be a phenomenally expensive retrofit for a built city. And you think of a city like Cleveland and realize 
repurposing these surface lots is going to have to be a private-public partnership going ahead and rejiggering the traffic signals. That's going to be expensive. We've got a train line that needs to be repurposed once you get there, and this all takes a big investment of public dollars because the private industry is only going to put part of that together. So I think that's really going to be the biggest hurdle is how expensive all of this change is, even if the long-term investment and payback is tremendous. And one of the things, you know, before, we, before I get you guys closing thoughts and we get out of here, one of the things I think that's interesting is neither of you brought up regulatory concerns. And I think a lot of that just shows, um, you know, an AV 3.0 again showed us that the uh, policy that we're getting from our, our policy makers is pro AV. It's pro autonomous vehicles. And it's interesting to me that, you know, we're sitting in a room with three lawyers and none of us are concerned about the regulatory implications. None of us are concerned about, uh, will the laws allow something like this? Because I think we all agree that, you know, momentum, especially from the lawmakers, is on the side of, you know, pro autonomous vehicles. Um, I think I'd look at that a little differently, though. I don't mention regulation because that's easy to solve compared to the science. All right, guys, do you have any uh, closing thoughts before we get out of here? One closing thought I had that, that came to mind with something that you were saying, Zach, um, which is on what's going to drive this and what is going to move people to autonomous vehicles. It's not only going to be removing the steering wheel, but it's going to be insurance. Can you imagine how expensive it's going to be to drive your own car when an autonomous vehicle is safer and um, you know knows how to drive itself around? When we're worried about this other guy when we're worried about the dangerous person in the non-autonomous vehicle, just to get insurance to be able to do that is going to be outrageous. And to that point, now all of a sudden I'm not on the road with a bunch of cars that cost twenty to forty thousand dollars. You know, with the lidar, the radar, the ultrasonic sensors, things like that. I'm on a road with a bunch of Bentleys, right? I'm on a road with a bunch of cars that are two hundred thousand dollars plus. That if I wreck that, this looks a lot different to an insurance company, right? Oh, incredibly different. All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it. Thanks so much, uh, Jay and Todd, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, until next time.